up, you fanats? This week, you should be hearing an interview with Dr. Chris Cogswell. Unfortunately, plans fell through, and we weren't able to record this week. However, in its place, I have a different interview. I apologize in advance for the audio quality. I was testing out a new program, and uh, Brad was kind of the guinea pig. Uh, his audio was definitely better than mine. I had to do a lot of bumping up of mine, so I apologize if uh, there are spikes, but I, I did my best to minimize them. Last year, a documentary was released that made waves. It's called Love and Saucers, and it details the story of David Huggins, an impressionist painter who has had experiences with extraterrestrials for his entire life. Brad delves into Dave's story and the time he spent with him in the course of producing this uh, wonderfully down-to-earth documentary. Brad Abrahams is a documentary filmmaker and a commercial director from Canada, currently based in the USA. His all-consuming interests in radical science, cryptozoology, and general esoterica inspire his stories. Love and Saucers is his first feature-length film. So here's my conversation with Brad Abrahams. What's up, you fanats? I have a special guest with me today, uh, the uh, filmmaker behind the fantastic new documentary, Love and Saucers, Brad Abrahams. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. I'm ecstatic to be here. I really love your show so far, and your, your appearance is on Astonishing Legends, so thanks for having me on. Oh, thank you. Um, so uh, before we get into the meat and potatoes of this episode, um, what inspired you to be a filmmaker? What, let's let's go back to the origin stories of Brad. What is where? What uh, inspired you to be the filmmaker that uh, you wanted to become? Well, um, two things. One was uh, as a child rummaging around in our basement. Uh, box um, that had been forgotten and finding an old uh, Pentax still SLR camera, like one from the 70s. Um, and, you know, just as like a, a bored kid living in the suburbs, um, decided photography would be my my new hobby. Um, and that led to film and also having a, uh, in the same suburb, a video store clerk, a local video store who would recommend me uh, VHS tapes to rent that she should definitely not have been recommending like a 14 year old or 13 year old. It was like David Lynch, uh -huh. Werner Herzog, Hodorowski, like just all these, um, very adult, surreal, high level, uh, films and filmmakers. And, and so that got me, you know, started early, um, on the eclectic side of, of the craft. Uh, so those were the two sort of more formative, um, instances and then just always having this this interest and pull towards the more stories in life and and realizing that film was such a good medium um in telling people or or showing people stories and and things that they most likely would never hear about otherwise oh it's really fascinating you know um uh, so uh we're talking today about Love and Saucers, which, as I've said, is a really great documentary, uh, just in uh, the fact that uh, you present uh, an experiencer in a really down-to-earth manner. Um, can you give our listeners just like a little synopsis of what the documentary is about? Sure. So it's about a, a totally normal-seeming 
elderly gentleman, 74, 75 years old, David Huggins, who lives in Hoboken. Um, he works part-time at a deli. Uh, he loves science fiction movies. He paints, and he also lost his virginity to a female extraterrestrial. And, and that's one of a uh, hundred such encounters that he's had with, with what he calls the beings um, and has since painted almost every single one of his encounters. And the film tries to tell his story in, in as straightforward a way as you can tell such an, uh, an out of this world tale. How did you uh, end up first learning about Dave Huggins and his story? It was on, um, uh, I think a now defunct paranormal podcast um, they they were discussing um, abductee cases, mm. I think with a, a psychologist or a hypnotherapist, and they mentioned David's offhand as one that was like even too ridiculous for them to to talk about or to consider. And I thought like if these if if something is too ridiculous for them, then I I definitely have to look into it. And the line that they they introed him with was that this man that um, fathered a hundred space babies. Uh, across the galaxy. And at this time, I didn't know he he painted um, or anything about him. I just thought, like, is this guy real? Is he lying? Is he crazy? I've got to know. And uh, I couldn't find anything about him. There was nothing, almost nothing on the internet um, because he has no no internet presence and doesn't use the internet. So I eventually tracked down a neighbor of his who did, like, a little photo book of his paintings, and she gave me his home phone number, and I called him and... and um, yeah, the rest is history. Yeah, he's a, he's a really fascinating individual. I first learned of him from this Netflix documentary. It's called the the Hidden Hand, which is kind of this really broad overview of the uh, the whole UFO phenomenon, uh, including uh, experiencers and such. Uh, and, and a lot of them featured uh, less well known uh, experiencers like Dave and uh, and, and a few others. Um, what did you, what were your thoughts on the abduction phenomenon before you know, going in to, to uh, meet Dave and, and get his story? Well, I had like a, I think like a pretty good general education on it. You know, I was like a, a longtime reader of the Fortean Times magazine for like 20 years and, you know, various books and documentaries, what have you. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't like a, a deep interest, uh, abductee or abduction phenomenon. Um, and it was, you know, what was more interesting for me were the stories about the people, uh, themselves, um, you know, why them, what's their, you know, sort of psychological makeup, what do they have in common? Do they have childhood experiences in common? Um, so it's, it's more like, I think there's sort of two, two concurrent interests with the UFOs. One is, you know, are they actually real? You know, are these spacecraft very like evidence-based and, 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 uh, analytical. And then there's the other side, which is the, the human part of it and wanting to know about the people and their stories. And I, I'm just more interested in, in the latter. I mean, both are obviously fascinating, but yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it, it's, it's a phenomenon that really, it, it drove me into this as well because, um, there's just something about uh, being forced to interact with 
uh, you know, supposed otherworldly beings and you're put in this position and, and, and how would you react? And, and, um, you, you definitely present the very, the very human side of that, which is, which is phenomenal. And, and I don't think a lot of people would, uh, tend to go at it from that direction. So I, I give you a lot of credit for that. that, that definitely, uh, the way you painted him was is fantastic in this in this film. Um, what was your first meeting like with Dave? Like, how did it how did it all pan out? <laughs> it was um, like interesting's an understatement. So um, on on the very first like call with him uh, after we were introduced, and I heard a little of his story. Uh, I I pitched the idea of hey, how about I just come come down or come up to Hoboken for a weekend. Um, and I'll film with you. I just considered an experiment and we'll both see if, if this is something that we want to pursue. And he said, okay. And he actually then offered for me to stay at his house for those few days. And, you know, at first it gave me pause, um, just to keep some kind of detachment, but then also being like completely self-funded at that time, I didn't have any funding for it. I was like, well, it also saves me hundreds of dollars on hotel, uh, so I decided to go for it and I ended up uh, sleeping in his ex-wife's bed, um, <laughs> for those, for those days. And, and she, she actually lives there, but she, she was away on, on vacation at the time. Um, so it was like as sort of up close and personal I could get in, into his life. And so from morning to night, I would film with him, uh, and get to know him and, and his routine. And it was like, that first experience um, was even like more, more jaw dropping than I had thought. So the first impression was walking into his studio and there's over like a hundred of these paintings of all various sizes. They're all just like stacked along the walls in a studio, like five paintings deep, every like surface you can imagine all sort of facing away, facing the wall. It's very striking. And then he took me to his room in the house and I see his like 2000 strong VHS tape collection. That's all science fiction and horror movies, except for there's also Whoopi Goldberg movies. Who's his favorite actress. And so that, that detail alone really like got me thinking. Um, but then what struck me the most was just how like comfortable I felt, how nice he was, how down to earth he was in what should have been like a very awkward situation. It wasn't because he's, He's just such like a nice down to earth, um, simply spoken guy. So like when he, when he started, you know, first pulling out these paintings and, and showing them to you, like how, how did you uh, take that? How did you really interpret that? Because like if if it was me and I was in that situation, I don't know how I'd react. I'd probably <laughs> freak out a little bit, but, uh, <laughs> well, I, um, you know, just, uh, as a good documentary filmmaker should, before I showed up there, we had, um, like a lot of phone conversations mm -hmm. and I basically did a lot of pre-interviewing with him. So I knew most of the stories and I, I've seen, I'd seen some of the, the paintings. Um, so I was braced. But uh, I wasn't expecting like just how many they were and how striking they are in person. And some of them are, are like life size, like the one of the one of the women is like an eight foot tall painting. And mm -hmm. that's, you know, 
how tall she apparently was. Um, and it's just like story after story or encounter after encounter. And yeah, it is, it's fairly overwhelming. And the, each painting is, I mean, another thing that drew me to the story is they're very cinematic looking like his attention to like composition and lighting and, and narrative within each painting I found is unintentionally like sophisticated. Um, that, uh, I think belies his like level of experience as a painter. Yeah, and that's 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 one of the things like uh, because of the documentaries, he's, he's, he's at, at certain times he's like, yeah, this painting isn't very good, but then you're looking at it like, no, that's actually really good, re- regardless of what's on the <laughs> canvas, man. You're you're a pretty good painter, you know. You're a really uh, uh, unique impressionist painter, and uh, you definitely get that with this uh, with the documentary. Um, did meeting with Dave and talking with him and and uh, did it make it easier to go with the approach that you did in this film, uh, making it more of a down to earth documentary, just allowing him to tell his story? Yeah, it was it was a conscious decision and one I actually had to fight against. Um, you know, I I want to make something fun and stylized and and um you know, interesting techniques and visual devices, but it just wasn't right for this story. Uh, it's such a, it's such an out there tale already that to embellish it, I felt any more would have just put it over the edge and, um, it would have become, you know, either like it's making fun or that it's too much, uh, in, on the side of, of his story or believing him. So I decided the best way to skate that line then was just to have him tell. And there were some stylistic flourishes in the editing and, and how the paintings are animated, but I, I hoped in a subtle way. And I think that's something that a lot of these, you know, UFO or paranormal films in particular don't do well. Um, they either like the, the more TV reality-based ones sort of make fun. And then a lot of the documentaries are almost like promotional pieces for the people themselves. And, and I just, you know, coming from the advertising world is like the last thing I wanted to do. <laughs> oh yeah, I know. I know exactly <laughs> how you feel. I, I was a business major and, uh, I decided to hang it up after taking a class <laughs> on marketing. So I right. know exactly how that feels. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so how did, uh, what was the process to get this filmed? Like, uh, how, how long did it take and, and, um, how long did it take to put together? It, it, uh, so the first shoot with him was in, I think 2012 or 2013. And I sort of sat on it cause I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know like if there was actually something there eventually, um, I had like a period where with some free time. So I made a little trailer of that first visit and it just like, um, it sort of exploded back in 2014. Um, just organically, it had nothing to do with, with me promoting it. It just like caught, caught on like wildfire, like Huffington post and cosmopolitan and like vice. They, they were running stories on, on this teaser. And I was like, well, like there's definitely something there. I just need to convince someone to, to give me like a bit of money to co-produce it with me. And once I did that with curator pictures, um, 
we then you know hired a cinematographer he actually filmed napoleon dynamite he was the the director of photography on napoleon dynamite and you know had a sound guy a producer and we went out um a couple more times like that and then i went out on my own a few more times so it was just like weekends here and there when we could afford it um when we were free not doing like our day job and it's kind of like not an efficient way to do it but it's it's the way you have to do it when you're self-funding and it's also good in a sense because it, it spreads out over years where you really get to see like a change and um your subject will open up to you more over a longer period of time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah absolutely absolutely and uh it definitely comes through you, you could definitely kind of track the progress with just like the way that at certain points he just uh shaves off his facial hair. yes <laughs> exactly i was <laughs> I was just as shocked as I think the viewers were, but he said it was like it was the hottest summer on record in Hoboken and his beard was just too hot. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's that's great. That is uh, that is fantastic. Um, uh, how many uh, just in the in the course of uh, of working with him and, and you stayed at the end that uh, or at least during the 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 course of the documentary that he's, is he still making still doing these paintings? He is. Yeah. They've, it's slowed down. I think he used to paint like really frequently and now it's like one every few months or so. Um, and it's, it's partly because he doesn't really have encounters anymore as, mm. as he knew them. And he's sort of exhausted all of the, the encounters. So he's like been repainting some, there's some that he, he sort of recalls better over time and is painting them. And now that, uh, we've helped him sell some paintings. He he's gonna repaint the ones he sells because he he always wants to have those those memories there with him. Yeah, no, that, uh, absolutely, and um, he, it's definitely something that he's um, sentimental about, and, and and like this, and the way that it's framed, it's not just I've had these encounters with. Uh, alien beings you know in my entire life it's i've had a relationship with these beings my entire life and uh did you ever get a sense of like how he felt the more that they pulled away as as he got older um yeah i think it was sadness and you don't hear many uh experiencers say they wish that that the encounters continued or that even that you know they'd rather spend their time with them than their their regular life that's very unique and so when they they started to to ease up or or just leave altogether um i think it's yeah really really actually upsetting for him yeah i can definitely imagine this especially when uh like when i uh I put out the uh, the the .5 episode of uh, Our Strange Skies. Uh, one of the things that I addressed was uh, that w- we may not be able to actually place these people into um, the simple categories of abductee and contactee. That there may actually be uh, it may be a little more complicated than that. Um, Mainly being that, you know, generally abductees see their experiences as negative and contactees are more towards the positive. Um, Despite the fact that what David has experienced his life would be 
abductee type experiences. Do you think he would see himself that way or do you does he see himself that way? No, I think he just uses the term because it's it's convenient, like one that people recognize, but beyond the first few experiences when he was a child, you know, 8 8 to 10 years old, when you re, you know, really don't know what's going on or have a framework for what's going on and he's he's you know, claiming that they've taken him up to the craft, they've put like a probe or whatever uh, implant in his nose. Th- that definitely, I think, would be there's no consent going on there. Right. Um, but as as he got older, um, he I don't think he would consider it at all like abductions against his will. Um, and I think he was very much like open to whatever was going on. Some of it was definitely like not pleasant, and I'm sure he would rather it didn't happen, but. For the most part, he was uh, like a willing participant. Yeah, and that's uh, and and at one point he says um, that there that he show that he said that there was trauma in his life uh, because of this. Um, did you get any signs that there that there was when you know in your time with him? Um, yeah, like a there was trauma that he he spoke about in terms of just like alcoholic parents mm-hmm. that were abusive to a certain extent. And I know that for a lot of people, like just hearing that is all they need to hear. And they're like, Oh, he's, you know, this was obviously like an escape for him, all these fantasies. And, you know, he had a split personality or, or what have you, but put it in context, like alcoholic parents, especially in like rural United States, in the fifties. Um, I mean, that's not that unique, Mm -hmm. especially, you know, getting like spanked or disciplined. Um, it's horrible, but at the time, like kids were even getting hit in school. So, um, it was definitely like a trauma, like any kid having, having an upbringing like that, but it's, I mean, there's a hell of a lot worse that can happen to you that, um, still doesn't cause people to claim they've been abducted by aliens for their life, entire life. So, I think the the trauma, something that like Jeffrey Kripal in the film, he mentions um, a lot of these people, like Whitley Strieber included, have had a trauma in their life, but that it's not necessarily the trauma itself that that is the cause of these experiences um, or that the, tra- it, the experiences are masks for the trauma, but that it leaves people open and more sensitive to these types of experiences, which is interesting to think about. Yeah, it really is because um, it it definitely attests to the fact that at this point people have been studying this phenomenon since uh, the 1980s, Uh, especially uh, Bud Hopkins who really just kind of gave us the framework for, okay, this is what happens in an abduction scenario. And then John Mack who came in and, you know, tried to explain everything and 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 i i think that's absolutely correct and i think um the fact that we still don't have answers to this uh absolutely attests to the fact that maybe we still do need to remain open to the idea that maybe because there is trauma in one's life that um it definitely could open yourself up to a, a whole range of experiences um and and i i think it's definitely something we need we need to uh continue to uh continue to study absolutely um 
over the over the course of the the time that uh, you worked with him, how many uh, encounters did he go into detail about with you? Probably like seventy five uh, is my my guesstimate, just based on like his paintings and that that every few paintings is one encounter, and um, they were in like his stories were considering how many there are and how old he is, like at 75 now, um, every time he tells a story, it's like exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Maybe not like word for word, but all the details are the same. So that's like pretty good recall uh, when you can like call up any one of 80 experiences in like minute detail uh, at any time. It was pretty impressive. Yeah, absolutely. He he definitely seemed uh, uh, sharp, a sharp, a sharp guy for his age. You know, uh, absolutely. Um, what um, what would you say that uh, didn't make it into the film? Uh, would you would you categorize as uh, that people would find fascinating uh, that maybe you didn't have time for or didn't have a place for it? Uh, I mentioned one that was just his, like we were going through his film collection and <laughs> I, I saw in this like sea of, of sort of like disturbing sci-fi and horror films, <clears throat> like a whole section that was just Whoopi Goldberg, uh, <laughs> and asked him about that. And he's like, Oh, she's just my favorite actress. I just love Whoopi Goldberg. Um, I, I, I sort of love that moment, but it just wasn't, wasn't right <laughs> for the movie. Um, there really wasn't wasn't much that wasn't in there. It was pretty like efficient. There's more like things that I would have liked to have been in there that that I didn't get to do. Like m- mostly um, interviewing his wife or ex-wife was like the number one thing I wanted, but just couldn't make happen. Yeah, um, and that's uh, it's definitely uh, unfortunate. Um, but at the same time, I I could probably understand. Uh, Especially when describing how, uh, you know, he he went about uh, telling his wife about these experiences that he had, uh, you know, throughout his life, and um, and I've and and it was it was kind of jarring at the end when there's that one little bit where they're still living together though. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah. It it's definitely unique, I think, among um, divorced couples. But so they. I think it was the, you know, him sort of coming out to his wife that about the experiences, you know, there was like another woman and she's an alien. Um, and, you know, I think an already is probably an already strained relationship because he was going through a lot um, trying to trying to um, integrate what happened to him. And that was the last straw. They got divorced and then they soon, pretty soon got back together. One was like, it was tough on their, their human child, Michael, who's in the film. And two, they just like, they like each other, you know, they're friends. And so now they're just friends that live together, uh, in a non-romantic way for the last 20 years. Yeah, that's I think that's, yeah, sort of like a, a, also a testament to, to David, um, that his ex-wife would even move back in with him. Yeah, absolutely, because it's just uh, like when you at the beginning of the, of the documentary, you know, it's that one scene. He's sitting there and he's saying, "Hey, I lost my virginity to an alien," and it's just like it's it's like that mind blowing. Like, what did you just say? <laughs> but 
but then like it's 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 handled so well because he's he really is just like a really relatable nice person <laughs> and uh it, it's definitely strange because um at least with the uh, this phenomenon that that's not always the case you know a lot of these people have just like really bad experiences and it affects them so so deeply that uh yeah it was it it, it really is uh so strange and so wonderful to see on on the screen um regarding his son michael did he ever claim to have experiences no um not that i'm aware of uh he we asked him that and he said his you know he never really experienced anything out of the ordinary during all this um david says that michael saw while he was with him saw a, a ufo over manhattan skyline but um, when Michael was a kid, but he doesn't remember that, but he never saw like any beings or, you know, much of anything while this was going on. But for the most part, um, you know, while Michael was, would have been old enough to remember th this was already past David having the bulk of his experiences. And that's interesting because when you talk about this type of phenomenon, it's, it's usually follows a, a family pattern. And at least that either um, the um, parents or uh, siblings or uh, children uh, end up, you know, having these experiences. Was there any indication that anybody else in his family had had these kind of experiences? None. Um, he, you know, and his he just said that his his brother and sister they just remember him like running away from things that they didn't see <laughs> so a couple times. Um, and he never really talked to them about it. I don't, it wasn't the type of family where you could be open about, about these strange experiences, like very conservative, you know, uh, farming family. And the one time or two times he brought it up, he actually got, you know, uh, whipped for lying about it. So, um, it, yeah, it just wasn't something even if probably they did experience something that they would have discussed. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, there's always that chance that maybe they, they did, but hey, you know, that's, uh, that's uh, chalk it up to the mystery here because it, it, this really is, in many ways, an atypical case of uh, abduction just because uh, in the... Um, uh, most of the time, there aren't highly uh, sexualized uh, encounters. There are, you know, a few famous ones, uh, Antonio Villasporas, uh, mm -hmm. and there's a and there's another one. But uh, Dave's really just unique in in uh, not just in that in the way that uh, he experiences it, but just the that the fact that he is he alone is experiencing it. So uh, I've always found that fascinating. Um, so, what I also find interesting uh, about the documentary, too, is that uh, the aliens themselves kind of play uh, characters, um, and, like, uh, specifically Crescent. Um, did, um, did, get, did Dave go into great detail about Crescent and, like, what she was exactly like with you? Yeah, uh, and she's the one um, he had the most experiences with. Um, you know, she physically, she looked 
exactly like a human woman, except for the face being weirdly pale with the big eyes and small mouth. Um, and at first, the encounters were very, like, including the sexual ones, sort of very utilitarian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, she was there to, to basically, like, get, get it done. And uh, <laughs> then over time, their relationship grew to something, like, more special, and it became more sensual. Um, they, like, in one point in the doc, he says, like, they would rub heads as one of their, like, I guess instead of kissing, mm-hmm. um, they would rub heads together. In some of the paintings, she's, like, cradling him. Um, so it seemed like an actual, like, pretty tender relationship that they had. And that is and that is fascinating. Um, would you characterize their relationship as, like, a, a couple together, or would you say it's more like a maternal, like, kind of thing? He he would describe that as, uh, like, them being a couple. Um, but I think from an outsider, it, it doesn't really seem that way because she's always the one sort of in control, um, and he doesn't have much say in the matter, but I think that's how, that's how he preferred it anyways. <laughs> Yeah, I, I could, I could definitely, I could definitely see that. Um, <laughs> but uh, also, cons- like uh, with the uh, with the other alien beings that he mentions, because he talks about uh, essentially mantis type beings, and uh, there's the tall being with the notch on his head, who he says is in charge, and. Uh, there's also the short hairy being with the with the glowing eyes. Did he did he ever uh, say that you know he he had more in depth interactions or anything like that? Because they they all seem to be kind of like um, there to get the job done. While Crescent's almost the you know the the nurturing one in this in this whole thing. Yeah, they all they all had sort of like um, general personalities or functions, like the insect being seemed sort of like the chaperone because in every single encounter, especially the sexual ones, he would just always be there watching in the corner. Mm-hmm. So he's, he is either a perv or he um, <laughs> just wanted to like keep tabs on everything. And it seemed like any major decision, like when David wanted to stay or wanted to see the hybrid children, um, he would be the one that, that would have the answer. Uh, then the grays, like, it seems consistent with other experiencers. They're sort of like the worker bees mm-hmm. um, that get get stuff done and don't have uh, much personality on their own. And they all seem to like, they may be different heights, but they all seem to look identical. Um, and then the little hairy guy, uh, I like to think of him as like an interdimensional Sasquatch. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> he he uh, seemed sort of like just nice and he was freaky looking, but... Um, uh, just seemed like sort of g- kind and gentle. And then there was the tall, thin man. And David only had a few encounters with him, but he, he was sort of like a fatherly figure, it seemed. And there was, there was always one uh, interesting painting that kept coming up um, that I don't think ever got expounded upon in the documentary. And it's, the, and it's this painting where... Uh, I think it's David as a young man, and he's coming up to a tree, and there's this really tall, what looks like a gray almost, but like he, it's got like a different color skin. It's got a darker complected skin. 
Did he ever expound upon that? Uh, No. (laughs) Yeah, there there were some of those more like outlier type beings and experiences that, that, you know, didn't fit in with the canon. And that one, he just said like he was just sort of like, it's a really funny painting too. He said he was Mm -hmm. just sort of walking back home and he got really freaked out when he looked up and saw under a tree was just this giant gray who was waving at him. It seems like a sort of very like child, childlike and childhood sort of almost like daydream fantasy, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's just like when you when you look at it in the, in the documentary, it's just like, um, what what is that? <laughs> What's what? Uh, okay, uh, no, it's it's so great though. It's it's definitely so great. Um, <laughs> Early on, uh, he talks about how uh, when he was young, his grandparents would uh, would take him to tent revivals and how it kind of turned him off to uh, religion in a sense. Do you, do you think he maybe not approaches this uh, from a, a religious sense, but he definitely, he approaches it from a, would you say from a spiritual per, uh, perspective? Yeah, it seems like it. And, and there's something that that uh, Professor Kripal brought up, not in the film, but when I chatted with him, that that it seemed like um, the UFOs became his new religion, in a sense, having in the South rejected the traditional sort of fundamental re- religion as it was served up to him and that a lot of people need need something spiritual. Um to complete their lives or to feel complete. And that maybe that, that this fulfilled that for him, not that he created it for that reason, but that it, it fulfilled it. And he also had to integrate the experiences has taken on some more spiritual practices like meditation, yoga. He does the I Ching, um, which is pretty, you know, all that's like pretty cool for a 70 something year old to be doing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, he, he sells it really, you know, like yeah. <laughs> he, he definitely sells it. And, and, uh, and, and, and it just like drives home this really heartwarming person. And, and, and it's so fantastic. Um, um, before we, uh, before we wrap up here, cause I, I don't think I have anything. I don't think I have anything else here for you, but, um, uh, definitely, uh, tackled everything that uh i wanted to get in here um where can people find you on the internet and what kind of stuff do you have coming up uh they can find any anything related to the film is is love and and that's uh links to where you can watch it as well as um we have a gallery of a bunch of his paintings and some video clips and a shop where you can get prints and, and some other things. Uh, <clears throat> my own site is bradabrahams.net and has some of my like commercial work, which I, I do to pay the bills begrudgingly. And <laughs> um, But other film projects are a feature-length documentary on, on the field of cryptozoology called Cryptozoologist, uh, featuring um, the, the leading researchers in the field. <clears throat> We're taking like a very um reputable approach to it so we're we're only like well vetted people like Lauren Coleman and Lyle Blackburn 
um, Linda Godfrey. And it's still going to be, you know, fun and quirky because you can't you can't get away from that. Um, but it's not it's not your, you know, Discovery Channel monster hunting show. It actually considers it as a, as a field, um, like the history and, and the future of it. Uh, so we're not going to get Bobo yelling in the woods. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, I mean, maybe maybe by mistake <laughs> while we're out there filming. But yeah. Uh, um, and then I've been I'm on post-production, a film that's that's actually um, science and medicine themed, sort of a critique of the, the scientific and medical establishments, um, where they've gone wrong and, and how to to fix it. And uh, also have a an idea brewing on conspiracy culture, a documentary on conspiracy culture um, that I would love to do, but obviously presents a lot of challenges. Another tough one to skate the line. Um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, I did do a short film called Swan Song of the Skunk Ape that you can see on my site, which, um, was about the Bigfoot of the Everglades and South Florida's strangest resident, which is known as the Skunk Ape. Absolutely. And we'll, uh, I'll link all that in the, uh, in the show notes for the episode. Uh, this has been a blast, man. Thank you so, so much for coming on. Yeah, you're welcome. A big thank you to Brad Abrahams for joining me this week on the podcast. Don't forget to check out his work at loveandsaucers.com and bradabrahams.net. You can also follow him on Twitter at loveandsaucers. You can find the Our Strange Guys podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, and most podcast apps. If you'd like to email the show with suggestions for future episodes or for comments, email us at ourstrangeskies at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Our Strange Skies. We also have a Facebook group, In Grey We Trust, a group for those that look up into Our Strange Skies. Come join the conversation over there. Our logo was designed by Tessa Brown, and our theme song was composed by Shane Yoder over at PutThemInASong.com. Shane still has a special discount for you over at the site. If you're in the market for a podcast theme song, maybe some mood music, or say you want a custom song, even mastering, you could receive 30% off any order over $50 by using the promo code STRANGE at checkout. Again, that's 30% off any order over $50. Just use the promo code STRANGE at checkout. And finally... Don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies. In Grey We Trust. What's the podcast? Play me a podcast. Hey guys, it's TJ from the Pints and Puzzles podcast. You miss me to my dad. We explore some of the strange, unusual, and often obscure cases throughout history. But did I mention there's craft beer reviews? My dad shows the best. Come give us a listen on iTunes or your podcast app of choice.
Media.